You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week we explore some aspect of the past, present or future of intelligence and espionage. Please support the show for free by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you could leave a single sentence, it will help other listeners find us. It can literally take less than a minute. We appreciate you. This week's guest is Dina Rezek. Dina is a British Egyptian expert on intelligence in the Arab world and Egypt in particular, and she joined the podcast from Cairo. She's an associate professor in Middle Eastern history at the University of Reading, UK, and the author of the book, The Arab World and Western Intelligence, which was published in 2018. For more information on this episode or Dina, go to our webpage at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast for extended show notes, links to further resources, and a full transcript. In this episode, Dina and I discuss Egypt's leadership and intelligence, the intelligence landscape of Egypt, Egypt's relationship with neighboring countries, including Israel, and the legendary angel Ashraf Marwan's story from an Egyptian perspective. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, thanks ever so much for joining me to speak about Egyptian intelligence. I really appreciate you coming on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me. So I think the the first thing to ask, just before we get going, because I know that you're actually in Egypt now. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about where this interest in Egyptian intelligence comes from? Sure. I think for me, it really had its origins in uh, 2013, 2014, the run-up to the election of the current president, who was himself a former spy chief. He was head of military intelligence and makes a very sort of easy transition to Egypt's most powerful, important role in the country. So we're talking about El Sisi? Yes, exactly. Abdel Fattah Sisi. Yeah. And part of what I found so fascinating about Abdel Fattah Sisi's presidency was how he was able to garner a significant amount of real support for his, you know, rather authoritarian politics. Um, and so I suppose my interest in uh, Sisi raised bigger questions about the nature of Egyptian intelligence and the way that it's intersected with political authority and political life. Just for our listeners very briefly, just so they have some context about who you are, uh, you're in Egypt now and you have extended family in Egypt. So could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about, about your background? Because I guess that's part of the reason why you're interested in it too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm Egyptian. Um, and also British. Um, I was born and raised in the UK, um, in London. I guess I was very much a child of 9-11 and the, the, the sort of narratives and discourses and conversations that were being had in the aftermath of 9-11 about how, you know, America's 
or, or the world's um, most well-resourced, um, you know, capable intelligence institution could have failed to predict an attack of that magnitude. And a lot of the conversation that was being had at the time was around Arab culture and some sort of a cultural divide, Samuel Huntington's idea of a clash of civilizations. Um, you know, these were all sort of phrases that were milling about my 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 consciousness, my teenage consciousness, uh, or sort of early 20s. So I um, I found myself in a position to kind of be able to explore that question in a more historical sense. At Cambridge, I did a module on intelligence history. It was led by Christopher Andrew and went on to do a PhD looking at Anglo-American assessments of the Arab world, specifically focused on Egypt, Partly because it was, you know, it was an interesting and important question. Um, you know, what intelligence analysts had understood, what they hadn't understood, what role culture had played in their understanding, their analysis, and their assessments. But also, I, I mean, from a personal perspective, I just wanted to find out a little bit more about my own history and my own past and the Egypt that my parents had left behind in search for a better life. Um, so, that's why I was focused on on those decades. Um, uh, late 50s, 60s, and 70s, right up to the assassination of President Sadat, when Egypt retakes the identity that it currently has, it's it. And the assassination of Sadat, can you just tell the listeners when that took place? 1981. So yeah, Sadat was assassinated in 1981. And when you say intelligence assessments of Egypt, do you mean just purely factual? What did for example, CIA analysts make of Egypt uh, in 1956 during the Suez Crisis, or do you mean the the sort of un- cultural understandings that they had and how that after Arabs, they're Egyptian, therefore X or Y exactly, or Z? Exactly, exactly. It was both. It was both. So I, was I, both. I, okay. I was looking to 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 kind of write partly a, a sort of institutional history in terms of what. Um, the CIA and the British intelligence community, let's say, got right and wrong, although that approach, that, that kind of, they did this right and they did that wrong, was also something that I was really seeking to challenge through my work um, and kind of bring to the fore um, some of Edward Said's ideas of Orientalism and the, the lenses through which Westerners have tended to perceive the Arab world um, and the degree to which stereotypes um, uh, featured uh, sometimes served and sometimes hindered analysis, but also how those stereotypes were used and manipulated by Arabs themselves in what Edward Said might call sort of native Orientalism. And just very briefly for listeners that aren't up to speed with this, can you just tell them about Orientalism, just the idea of it? Sure. So Orientalism um, is a term coined um, by Edwards in his book called Orientalism um, in 1978 that basically uh, sought to prove and demonstrate the extent to which Western observers, Western writers, Western artists painted uh, literally and metaphorically um, the Arab world in a particular denigrating way and sort to expose the very common stereotypes that um, were used and what he saw as a kind of pattern, a linguistic and visual pattern of interpreting the Arab world. And he essentially made the case that it was almost impossible for Westerners to truly understand the region because they were so limited by these kind of stereotypes um, that had taken form through colonial encounters. That was the in-brief argument of of Orientalism. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there uh, the the General Intelligence Service. So I think it would be useful at this point just to very briefly lay out the the Egyptian intelligence landscape. So as I understand it, there's three main agencies, but can you just tell us what those are and if there is any more uh, and tell us briefly what they do and and, and so forth. Just give us some context, please. So the General Intelligence Service um, uh, is the one that I suppose is the most well-known internationally at least. Um, It 
reports directly to the president, and it's Egypt's first um, civilian um, agency, and it was founded in 1954. It's kind of modeled on the CIA um, in the sense that it's supposed to be both supervisor and coordinator of all of Egypt's intelligence services um, and also conduct covert operations. So, so in brief, that's its kind of mandate. And it's also known as the Mukhabarat. Is that Mukhabarat, the right way to pronounce yeah. it? Mukhabarat, Mukhabarat. Is, yeah, is the, is, is, the, is the Arabic term for intelligence services more broadly speaking. So you could, you could use the term to describe uh, the other two agencies as well, although they have their own specific names. Uh, but I think it's useful to also think about um, the sort of hierarchies of these agencies um, and who they report to, because that's quite revealing in terms of understanding the political makeup of the regime and some of the rivalries that exist within it. So you have the GIS that sort of reports to the president, and then you have um, military intelligence, um, which is under the purview of the Ministry of Defence, um, and that uh, has a sort of older background um, in Egypt and was very much one of the kind of principal agencies for a period of time. It's also the agency that uh, President Sisi came from, um, which gives an indication, I think, of its um, power. He was the head of intelligence? Exactly, exactly during the uh, 2011 revolution, in fact, and made some kind of um, uh, controversial claims about some of the accusations of sexual assault um, perpetuated by uh, the military during that time. And the third major organization, which is perhaps the, the, um, the one that Egyptians are most familiar with and you know, aware of, is what's now called Amnon essentially the sort of state security service. Um, it's, had, it's had various kind of names over years. In theory, it was, it was disbanded um, after the 2011 revolution in response to some of the controversies that were associated with the Ministry of Interior's um, torture and sort of, you know, security policies. Um, but it was, it was uh, quickly reinstated with the counter-revolution. And that organization is under the purview of the, of, of the Ministry of Interior. So what you effectively have is three centers of power, um, the president, the military, and the interior ministry. Um, uh, a really good book on this that explores the dynamic between these three sectors is Heisen and D's Soldiers, Spies, and Statesmen. He's a Cambridge sociologist who's written extensively about the relationship between these three centres of powers um, and, and, and really uh, gone into incredible detail as to the, the rivalry um, that exists between them. So when you say the uh, internal security, we're talking about counterintelligence, finding foreign spies, protecting Egypt's secrets at home, uh, internal security, but there's also a, a sort of internal state police aspect to it as well. Is that correct? Yeah, and I would say that is the primary um, sort of concern. Um, I, th I think that's one of the ways in which the Egyptian intelligence service sort of um, conceives of its primary responsibility. It's about maintaining internal security and particularly at the moment and the in, in, in since 2014, I would say, um, sort of eliminating any sort of political opposition, any possibility of political opposition. And, and, it, and in that sense, it really kind of harks back somewhat nostalgically to the Nasser era where there was similar levels of control, um, particularly over the media and um, the kind of an ability to control information and control the narrative. Um, that, that I would argue is the principal focus of the intelligence community at the moment. So we had a guest on, a former head of intelligence in Kenya, and he was saying that the intelligence services grew out of the, the British colonial legacy, but um, 
Effectively, before he took over, there was a, a special branch derived from a British idea of the special branch. But with this organization, it was one where the general citizenry, you know, it was one that you sort of whispered or was hush-hush because it was notorious for being very repressive. Is that the case in Egypt? You go there, you go about your life, and if you're not involved in, you know, revolutionary politics or so forth, you've got nothing to worry about, or like just on a spectrum of complete oppression through to complete laissez-faire, like where, where is Egypt? Is it something that everyday people fear? Is it, is it omnipresent? Is it more of a myth than a reality? Help, help us understand that a little bit more. Well, I think this is kind of varied through time. Um, so in general, I would say, if you are not involved in Egyptian politics, if you are not involved in activism, um, if you are not in some sense opposing the regime, then you were relatively safe. But in, in recent times, that's very different. Uh, and you know, just to give one example, in 2015, an Egyptian lawyer was arrested for photoshopping Mickey Mouse ears um, onto, you know, a picture of the president, but, but this also has kind of older historical precedents. Uh, Nasser apparently had an entire office analyzing and reporting jokes that were circulating um, about him um, that he, he thought, you know, the American embassy was behind. And these were actually, you know, these were written up and sent through as regular reports. So this kind of obsessive preoccupation with anything that be conceived of as threatening is a, a real thing that, that, that Egyptians have to contend with. I don't really know how I could deal with a self-inflicted weekly roast uh, hearing what everyone was saying about <laughs> yeah, exactly. me. <laughs> you know, You'd have to develop quite like a lot of fun. Skin, you? <laughs> you really do, yeah. After yeah. A, you're like, oh, I, I don't know if I've got the stomach for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can, can you give us an example of Maybe there's some example in recent history where these state organs have have came into play. I don't know. Um, feel free to choose a different example, but the obvious one is what's known in the West anyway is the Arab Spring. Is there? Do the three of them all like kick into gear when the Arab Spring happens? Or feel free to choose a different example. Is there some episode or example that we can use to bring these agencies alive for our listeners? I mean, I think yeah, the Arab Spring is a really good example in terms of unpacking some of the the internal kind of rivalries and dynamics that existed between the various components of the state that we discussed, the presidency, the military, and the Ministry of the Interior. Because what you essentially see in 2011 is the military find an opportunity to reclaim some of the power that they've lost since uh, a really humiliating defeat in 1967 in what was known as the Six-Day War. And President Nasser at the time, you know, publicly decrying that Egypt had, bec that Egypt had become a Mohabharat state um, and that he was looking to sort of um, diffuse some of the military's power, that they had been wasting time and effort spying on their own citizens rather than getting important up-to-date intelligence on Israel and on the real threats to Egypt's sort of security. Um, and what you see uh, after Nasser dies um, in 1970 with Sadat's presidency and then even more so with the Mubarak regime is a kind of downgrading of military power and an expanding of the Ministry of Interior um, as a counterweight to the military. So in 2011, when protesters come to the streets in the way that they do, calling for Mubarak to step down, protesting the really um, sort of vicious excesses of the Ministry of Interior uh, through, for example, the torture um, and murder of Khalid Saeed. Um, you might have heard of the Facebook page, we are all Khalid Saeed. Um, the military see an opportunity for themselves here. They see an opportunity to stand with the people People and the army on one hand, that, that was one of the big mantras of, of the early 2011 um, protests, and, and um, sideline the power both of the presidency and of the Ministry of Interior that has become incredibly unpopular, unpopular in the eyes of Egyptian 
And so you actually think about the 2011 to 2013 period. If you were on the streets in Egypt, you would have noticed that police suddenly weren't around, you know, what had previously been an extremely, you know, police-heavy presence in places like Cairo and Alexandria, et cetera, um, was, was, was kind of empty. And so that was reflective of some of the power struggles that were taking place. Now, since Sisi has come to power, uh, very aware of this kind of, this, this internal rivalry, he sought to manage that by obviously using his previous background as head of military intelligence, but also making sure that he has really good control over the general intelligence service through the appointment of Abbas Kermit, um, who is his kind of right-hand man, and also his son within the organization. So, yeah, I think actually the Arab Spring is a, is a really good example of how, on the surface, this looked like popular protests bringing down a president, um, and that was... You know, part of the story, actually, the, the sort of what's what's called the deep state was operating uh, beneath the surface as well. To help you digest this episode, here is a short primer on the Arab Spring. In 2010, a working class Tunisian man set himself on fire in front of a government office. He made his living from selling produce and his car had been confiscated. This trigger sparked a revolutionary uprising against the established order that has come to be known as the Arab Spring. Many across the Arab world, that is around 20 or so countries across North Africa and the Middle East, were similarly dissatisfied with government repression, harassment and corruption as well as a chronic lack of economic opportunity and inequality. After a mass uprising in Tunisia, President Ben Ali eventually spread to Saudi Arabia. The Arab Spring was important for many reasons, not least the role that social media and cell phones played in the uprising and in their spread across the region. In Egypt, it led to the resignation of President Hosni Mubarak, who had been in power for 30 years, and would also lead to political change in Libya, where Colonel Gaddafi had been in power for 42 years. In places like Syria and Yemen, it would culminate in civil war and humanitarian crises that last to this day. Historians will debate the Arab Spring for decades to come, but it did lead to widespread political change, both in the region and geopolitically. For example, shifts in alliances, war, migration, refugees, energy markets, resurgent authoritarianism, you name it, all the piggies. To close out, it was called Spring, not after a season, but after the Prague Spring. Mass protests that took place in 1968 against the oppressive Soviet model that was imposed on Czechoslovakia. And the People's Spring of 1848, which aimed to shake off the arch-conservative regimes that had been in power across Europe really since the end of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars in 1815. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.
And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Just help me understand that um, presumably the interior minister reports to the president and the head of the military reports to the president. So, But, but, but what you're saying is that although the General Intelligence Service is the only one that reports di- directly to him, the interior minister or the military would use the other two to build semi-independent power bases that, that were trying to take power away from the president. It wasn't a a clean bureaucratic flow of power to the president? Exactly. That historically has been the case. Um, Certainly under Nasser, uh, she complained about there being essentially a state within a state um, in terms of how the military operated. Um, His control over the regime was was far from the the, the sort of complete authoritarian rule that people perhaps associate with his leadership. Currently, in practice, although these theoretical sort of um, hierarchies apply, CC I think, is far too smart to allow that kind of centres of power, let's say, to gather under his regime. And so, yes, everybody reports to him. And he has avenues, um, I would imagine, to ensure that he is in sort of, I wouldn't say full control, but that, that he, 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 he would not let, let's say, what happened in the run-up to 2011 happen. Under his watch, he's he's very aware of the the kind of lessons of history in that regard. I would imagine. But the the military, just for our listeners again that aren't up to speed on the history, the military have been historically quite important. Uh, Nasser was a military officer. Sadat, um, uh, Mubarak, uh, Sisi. You say military officer, and that could mean they were you know, a private for one year, uh, you know, or or it could be there were career military officers, right? And then when you say, well, it was all military officers, if it's somewhere like Israel, the, the next door neighbor, then there's a pretty good chance that they're going to be ex-military because pretty much most people go to the military. So just help us understand, is, it, is, is there conscription in Egypt? Does everybody serve in the military? Were all of those presidents career military officers or was it just, it was a rites of passage thing that they'd done briefly? I'm just trying to understand how much of a grip the military has on, on power. No, I mean, these were all career military officers. Yes, there is conscription in Egypt. There are some exceptions. Um, everybody does some military service, but all of these presidents that we're talking about are people who have honed their, um, sort of their political leadership skills within the military. And, and, and I would say also um, it's important to understand the role that the military plays, not just you know, in, like, let's say, pure politics, but in the popular imagination and the sort of political imaginary that animates ordinary Egyptians. For a long time, the military was seen as almost, a, had almost a religious authority. You know, we don't challenge the military. The military are the organisation who liberated us from British rule, um, liberated us from decades of humiliation, achieved uh, what's very much regarded as a military victory in the 1973 war. You know, they have occupied this kind of quasi-religious role within the Egyptian imagination. And and so, for example, if we go back to 2011, you had lots of high-profile, educated um, activists saying the military will never fire on the people. The military will never turn on the people. Um, and I'm sure they believed that. You know, such was the was the sort of the, the reverence um, that was um, such was the reverence that the military was regarded with. Um, and I think that's a large part of how and why CC comes to power in the way that he does. The military are seen as the ultimate, you know, the ultimate salvation of Egyptians in 2013. They will save Egyptians from the Muslim Brotherhood. 
and from all, all the destruction that's associated with their brief time in power. So, so one of the questions that I have is how powerful are the the heads of these respective intelligence agencies politically? Are they kingmakers or are they completely ineffectual? <laughs> but it sounds like we've got a pretty decent answer so far. They're, they're very powerful. Incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. Um, and, and, and I think what's interesting also is the degree to which their power has allowed Egyptian intelligence services to do things and to occupy spaces within the Egyptian body politic that, that you wouldn't see in Western contexts. So, for example, the Egyptian intelligence services have bought out, um, more or less, uh, uh, most of Egypt's private media and, and, and created an organization called the United Media Services that effectively gives it direct control over what content is being produced and disseminated throughout the Arab world. We take a more recent example, COP27, which was held in the Red Sea Resort of Shamashir. The International Convention Center is actually the property of the Joint Intelligence Service. It was bought in 2017. So, so you have this kind of expansive reach that has more recently been legally backed, um, a parliamentary decree that has really given the intelligence services the power to establish its own economic enterprises, similar to that which has always been the case for the military. What we're seeing at the moment is this quite you know, unprecedented expansion of intelligence power within the this is really really fascinating so this is a little bit like in iran where you have the revolutionary guards or other organizations who start they're acquiring property they've got money-making ventures they've got uh, their fingers in the the pie all over the place this is something similar yeah yeah um, uh, fingers and many pies, essentially. <laughs> um, uh, every pie. Ev- every pie. <laughs> the, Egyptian, <laughs> the Egyptian intelligence service, um, I would say, does not want there to be a pie in which it does not have a finger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a good way to put that, actually. <laughs> I like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they are seeking absolute, you know, full control. So for intelligence specifically, so I understand the military has always played a role. It's always played a powerful role. Career military officers have been the president. But is the is the the power of intelligence agencies specifically as opposed to the military? Is this a more recent evolution or is this something that has always been the case? No, I think I think um that is definitely a more kind of recent evolution. I think it's it's useful to kind of think about some of the statistics that are associated with the expansion of the Ministry of Interior. If we think about sort of this dynamic that about previously, where Sadat um, begins a process of kind of curtailing military power, uh, in the mid-1970s, you have military spending constituting about a third of the you know, annual budget. And by 1980, this has dropped to a fifth. By 2010, the eve of the Arab Spring, um, military spending constitutes just 2.5% of GDP. Wow. That's like France or Belgium. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and you compare that to spending on the Ministry of Interior, um, which more than doubles um, between 1974 to 2002. And you know, 21% of state employment comes under the purview of, of the Ministry of Interior. So... There is definitely a, from the 1970s, a push to expand the purview of the Ministry of Interior's intelligence capabilities um, at the expense of the military, which I think accounts for part of how and why the intelligence services have such an important and substantial role as they do currently. And in, in what areas is Egyptian intelligence strong in, and in what areas are they less strong in? And, you know, just give us a picture. There's a whole pantry of different things that you could mix and match. Like, what are some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of Egyptian intelligence? I mean, I think analysis has definitely featured quite low on their levels of priority. Um, one of the sort of founding fathers of Egyptian intelligence um, 
a notorious spy chief by the name of Salah Nas. He was actually imprisoned in 1967. And whilst he was in prison, he wrote both an autobiography and a two-volume work, which was um, called Psychological Warfare, The Battle of Words and Perceptions. He writes about the sort of Hobbesian state of nature of the international system, this kind of eat-or-be-eaten environment in which he conceives Egypt operating and the importance of controlling the narrative. The role of intelligence analysis and, and sort of, you know, understanding was almost regarded as a secondary quasi-academic activity that's, you know, similar to that of a, of a kind of publishing house. Um, and, you know, we see echoes of that in terms of the CIA and, and, and the kind of the focus that is sometimes given to analysis um, in other intelligence organisations. This obviously results in some serious, you know, foreign policy failures. Um, I suppose, I suppose the two most important examples back to the 1960s um, in Yemen, when intelligence really believed that intervening to support the Republicans against the Yemeni monarchy would, you know, enhance Egypt's prestige after the dissolution of the United Arab Republic in 1962 and give Egypt a really important strategic foothold, allowing it to potentially even destabilize the Saudi regime. And the reality is that actually Yemen proves to be Egypt's Vietnam. And yeah, analysts grossly underestimated, you know, the tenacity of the Yemeni royalists, the complex tribal structures, um, Saudi strength in Yemen. And by 1965, uh, 70,000 Egyptian soldiers are lost to this war, which is really important considering Egypt's kind of vulnerability in 1967, where, you know, infamously the air force is destroyed um, in a six-day preemptive attack by Israel. And this is a war where Israel, you know, acquires three times its former territory and, um, you know, makes massive gains at the expense of Egypt and Syria. And, and, and President Nasser openly, you know, blames the intelligence services for failing to provide, you know, adequate information. And then, and then of course, the 1967 war, you know, um, where intelligence estimates um, within Egypt assess that Israel would not walk into an open grave, considering Egyptian superiority and weapons and artillery and air power. I have an interesting comical quote in, in my book of an American analyst reporting a quite prominent Egyptian complaining um, that our intelligence service is the most ignorant in the world. He said, where the Israelis knew the name of every Egyptian on relief um, and his wife's name too, we didn't even know where Moshe Dayan's house was. Moshe Dayan was, you know, Minister of Defense at the time. So this kind of um, actually, you know, we, we have this big intelligence community and these giant structures that are actually just too busy, you know, collecting jokes and, and spying on ordinary Egyptians um, to actually be able to, you know, make some of the most basic assessments and translate those into actionable foreign policy um, was, yeah, yeah, was of the real concern at the time. And we're talking about the Six-Day War, so or what the, the Israelis call the Six-Day War. So the Egyptian, uh, the Israelis basically come in and destroy the Israel, the Egyptian Air Force on the ground, and it's all over very quickly. Exactly, exactly. a really, really traumatic um, sort of moment for not just Egypt, but I think the Arab world as a whole. It's interesting when you were talking there about Nasser getting involved in the Yemeni civil war to try to restore some sense of lost pride for Syria going back to being independent. And then uh, the Six-Day War, um, there's this, you know, when we get to 1973 and the Yom Kippur War or the October War, as it's also known, there's also this sense of restoring credibility. But this this reminds me of when you were talking earlier about appearing to be manly and, and macho and so forth, right? If you get defeated, you want to be shown that you've you've got a heart and that you can take the fight to them, even even though 1973 is not necessarily a, an Egyptian victory, but it's still a sense that we had the upper hand for a bit and we showed them that we are capable. It's, it's not a military victory. 
but it is a political victory. And that is what that was one of the big kind of that was one of the big, let's say, intelligence failures um, in terms of how the rest of the world analyzed the run-up to 1973. There was fundamentally this concept that that Sadat would not start an unwinnable war. I mean, that's what Henry Kissinger, you know, so famously said. We did not take seriously the idea that um, someone would start a war that they could not win simply to restore self-respect. But in actual fact, this is a very Clausewitzian idea that you simply launch a limited war to achieve a political goal. And in Sadat's mind, this was a very limited endeavor. That's not what the Syrians thought. <laughs> the Syrians were out to destroy Israel. And that was part of the Egyptian deception plan as well. They didn't just deceive Israel. They deceived everybody that it was in their interest to deceive in order to get the results that, um, of course, they paid for that to some extent with their expulsion from the Arab League and, you know, being you know, ostracized from the um, Arab community as a result of the peace treaty with Israel. But so that had very specific objectives that the limited military victory of 1973 achieved well for him. So the the expulsion or the expulsion of Egypt from the Arab League does this take place in 19, after 1973, after the war in 1973, or does it take place in 1978 when pieces, uh, you know, reached between Sadat and Begin at Camp David under the Carter administration? No, after the war, Egypt is the is the hero of the Arab world. You know, Egypt has done that, what that, no that, other Arab what country was able to do, which is gain back Egyptian land and humiliate the Israelis and force them to the negotiating table under American auspices. And um, that is a major, major achievement. Um, you know, Egypt is, you know, Egypt is um, not too popular with Syria, but over, overall within the region, extremely, you know, well-regarded um, in the aftermath of 1973. No, it's with the peace treaty with Israel and specifically it's kind of bilateral nature um, that the Palestinian cause had been set aside in order for Israel and Egypt to, to come to an agreement um, that, you know, really irked uh, other Arab leaders. And so, yeah, Egypt is expelled from the Arab League in the aftermath of the peace treaty with Israel. Mm. It's interesting because when you mentioned the 67 war and the Egyptians saying, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no way that the Israelis would walk into an open grave. There's no, there's no way that they would do this. But then in '73, the whole thing is flipped on its head, and the Israelis are saying, there's no, there's no way that they would do this. It's also fascinating that it, it wasn't necessarily a, a military victory, but it was a political victory. It, to me, it, re it reminds me of the the Tet Offensive in 1968 during the Vietnam War. As I understand it, it was an operational defeat for the v North Vietnamese. It was a tactical defeat. But at the grand strategic and political level, it was a success because that was the turning point. Well, I think you see a similar thing happen in 1956 um, with uh, the Suez Crisis, where NASA is able to turn what could have been a terribly, very kind of threatening situation into a giant political victory, you know, getting the Americans to apply sanctions to their, you know, their ally, um, Britain, um, and essentially force a very humiliating British withdrawal. I think that's a really interesting question about the relationship between military achievements, military goals, and political ones. Um, and also, you know, mirror imaging, not, not, not assuming that your opponent is going to think in the same way that you do, and by the same um, logic and kind of calculations as you. I've often thought that a lot of these types of intelligence uh, methods and methodologies that some somebody should write a book on how these can be used for a relationship or a marriage <laughs> or something like that, shouldn't they? You know, mirror imaging, perception. <laughs> you know. I think, I think, I think. Yeah. Analysis, making sure that you're getting the right input. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that literature does exist. It just hasn't been directly linked to, you know, know your yeah. enemy, right? <laughs> except except yeah, exactly. your partner isn't your enemy. <laughs> in theory <laughs> I could win this argument but it could be it could be a strategic defeat exactly uh, okay do you want to be right or do you want to be happy <laughs> uh, yeah exactly <laughs>
So you mentioned uh, Israel there. So this episode is coming on the back of podcast special where we're looking at Israel in depth. So I just want to explore a little bit more the relationship between Israeli intelligence and Egyptian intelligence. So um, what is that like just now? So obviously in the past, pre-1978, it wasn't particularly good. What is it like now? Is it an uneasy standoff? Is there a lot of collaboration? Does it depend on the agency? Or is it just, you stay over there, we stay over here, and let's try to minimize contact? Um, help us understand the nature of that relationship at the moment. Sure. Well, I think uh, Israel is you know, one of its primary partners when it comes to intelligence um, and that's because they have some kind of shared interests. So obviously the Sinai region is um, an area where they have collaborated quite extensively. Um, Israel has conducted since 2015 over 100 operations in Sinai, which um, Egyptian officials sort of deny, you know, providing like um, official sanction to, but it's kind of well known there is um, collaboration in Sinai and Egypt, and that Israel is, you know, to some extent, leading um, the uh, operational aspect of um, things there. And th and this is against what militants or exactly or... is is militants, yeah, okay. um, which okay, is which is um, it's worth saying explicitly at this stage because we, I don't mean, we have we've talked about this explicitly, but you know, um, Islamists have since the nineteen nineties been Egypt's primary domestic um, focus, and that was one of the that was one of the kind of main issues, not to call it that, that almost really men um, made to transforming the intelligence culture um, within Egypt, um, which is that no longer was, for example, Israel seen as the primary enemy. Um, Islamists were. Uh, the principal target, the focus. One US source actually suggested that um, you know eighty percent of men's time was spent monitoring Egypt's military and uh, Islamist uh, connections. Of course, Sadat was assassinated in nineteen eighty one by a military with Islamist connections. So you can understand where that kind of fear comes from. So yeah, um, there is a kind of recent but strong history of collaboration between the Egyptian and Israeli intelligence services. The nature of the collaboration is a listen, we can't come out and say that we're friends, but basically we are friends and we cooperate quite extensively and we're not going to go to war again anytime, even remotely soon. So that border between Israel and Egypt there's not, there's not a threat coming from there on an interstate level. It's more from non-state actors, militants, and, you know, so forth. Absolutely. Okay. And I think we, we have to put this in the context of the bigger kind of normalization uh, processes that are taking place in relation to Israel. Egypt is really, you know, a, a leader in that, recognizing Israel's here to stay. We might as well work with them, particularly if it's in our interests. Yes, we're not going to shout about this publicly, but there is a, let's say, a move from a cold piece to a warm piece um, through yeah, collaborations like this, where there's shared interests and kind of concrete reason to, to work together. And, and just to understand Egypt in the context of where it's located, so let's look at the, the border with Sudan and, and Libya. What's Egypt's relationship like with them? Are there intelligence concerns, militants and and so forth? Or is there any kind of interstate animus there? Or is everything hunky-dory? Hunky-dory, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hunky-dory is, is. <laughs> yeah, is not how I would describe that, that, that sort of security um, posture. So I think, you know, Egypt has you and your listeners will have heard undoubtedly about tensions um, that have been brewing between Egypt and Ethiopia over the Renaissance Dam um, that uh, was planned there. And so in 2021, Uganda announced a military intelligence sharing agreement as a result of that um, sort of, let's say, tangible issue on which the two countries could collaborate. 
And we saw a similar uh, military intelligence sharing agreement in place with Angola uh, reported earlier this year. And that was focused on combating terrorism. Uh, regionally, I think you see sort of, you know, memorandums of understanding or sort of noises uh, in the direction of intelligence sharing in order to secure specific strategic interests um, that Egypt is concerned about. But, you know, there isn't any sort of uh, like Middle Eastern five eyes where, you know, Arab countries or, or in countries with sort of you know, shared strategic interests will agree to share a certain amount of, of intelligence information. There just there isn't that level of trust. Um, and I think that's, you know, the, the wise probably that exists within these regimes um, uh, precludes from that sort of, you know, um, interstate level of cooperation, um, which, you know, even militarily has not been particularly strong or impressive. I would say the Gulf War, 1990s, 1991 was the, was the best, you know, military kind of um, strategic cooperation that existed within the Arab world. And we haven't seen that replicated since. It's totally fascinating. And the, the, just for our listeners that, that are rusty on the geography, the reason why Ethiopia could be an issue is not because it's got a land border with Egypt, but because the Nile River, which is absolutely huge, uh, goes all the way down to uh, Uganda uh, and flows through so many different countries. And and this is one of the fascinating things about the modern world, water politics, right? Dams. You even see it here in the States with rivers in the American West. I mean, the Nile is the source of life. It's, it, you know, if, if you take a train journey, um, I took a train journey last, last uh, December um, from Aswan all the way up to Cairo. So just all, all along the Nile and you see this kind of you know, that's Egypt's literally green, kind of fertile, you know, period. That's where that's where life kind of originates. Um, so so it's very much regarded as a principal, you know, resource. Just as we get towards the end of the interview, I think it would be quite fascinating just to just to briefly talk about uh, your views on the angel. Uh, Ashraf Marwan, um, who comes up in the Israeli episodes. Was he a traitor? What was he? And as someone that studies Egyptian intelligence, I just wondered what your take on it was. So we're talking about this. You couldn't make this stuff up. The son-in-law of Nasser, who becomes a principal advisor to Anwar Sadat. So what's your take on Ashraf Marwan? Yeah, I mean, I actually met Ashraf Marwan very briefly. Oh, you did? Yeah, wow. before he before he died, um, in uh, well, these serious circumstances in uh, 2007. Um, yes, in London. So he was. It was 2006, and it was the 50 year anniversary of the Suez crisis. I was invited by the British ambassador to Cairo at the time to attend the event. And I noticed that Ashraf Marwan was the only person at the conference not wearing a name tag. Um, so he had an automatically sort of mysterious demeanor. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, the, the following year, he was found um, dead. He'd made the transition from a balcony <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to a rose garden. And we don't know exactly how that transition was made. But what is, what is interesting um, and I think significant is that um, two other individuals um, that had connections to the Egyptian intelligence um, services had died in exactly the same way. One of them was famous actress Saad Hosni, who I also met in London, um, uh, sort of shortly before she died. Um, so, if there's, any, if there's any Egyptians in London, they're probably like, <laughs> I, I hope I don't run out of dinner. We're just <laughs> next yeah, stop. Is... <laughs> oh, oh, just don't, don't, don't live in a flat with a balcony. <laughs> in that, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, basement. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's very it's very mysterious. <laughs> um, uh, Ashraf Marwan, I think, is an absolutely fascinating character, and as you know, both sides, both Israel and Egypt, claim that he worked for them. So when he died, he was given a state funeral and, you know, um, 
lauded as a hero. Mubarak said that his service to the country, you know, could not be disclosed at the present moment, but you know, the the, the future would would reveal the 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 amazing contribution that he had made to Egypt's um, sort of uh, security. And Israel, of course, has brought a very vitriolic campaign to assert that he was an Israeli spy um, and he was essentially the reason why Israel was caught unaware in the way that it was. I think the jury is still out. Um, I, I am honestly not sure. Um, I think it's very possible that he was working for both, that he was both the double agent and, uh, you know, that essentially um, he was the kind of character who was out for himself more than he was for either of those countries. Um, he amassed a huge personal fortune um, as a result of his work. You know, apparently he was paid, I heard somewhere that he was paid $50,000 to $100,000 for each meeting he had with the Israelis. And that's apart from his sort of arms dealing and gambling. So, so you know, it's a very, it, there, there's, a, there's a lot of murky waters. But what we do know is that he did provide absolutely vital um, information about Egyptian plans, intentions, capabilities to the Israelis. Um, we also know, however, that those were somewhat off. And, you know, so for example, he, um, he warned Israel, no uncertain terms, that, is, that Egypt was going to attack. He said that the attack was going to happen at 6 p.m. And in reality, the attack happened at 2 p.m. But those crucial four hours, I think, you know, really allowed Egyptians to um, make the kind of progress that they needed to make across the Suez Canal in order to stand a chance of achieving sort of strategic goals that they had in terms of reaching the Sinai Peninsula. Israel, in- interestingly, just released a whole load of documents about this a few days ago on the anniversary of the um, of the war. They're all in Hebrew, unfortunately, which um, uh, I don't read. So. Um, Amongst the documents that were released is a picture of Ashraf Marwan. Um, so, so some, you know, commentators have said that the release of these documents, you know, proves definitively that Ashraf Marwan was an Israeli agent. My reading of it is is that that's not the case. It proves that they believed that he was an Israeli agent, but yeah, it, it's impossible to know. Um, I think even if, for example, Ashraf Marwan's memoirs were available to us and, and there there is you know, there is information that he was writing memoirs at the time of his death that would still only tell us what he wanted us to know about the situation so ultimately I think this might be one of those cases where we have to um, come to terms with not knowing the, the complete truth I think the best um, the best that you can say is we don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> And yeah, I, I, it's possible that there is material that transpires um, in the future, uh, potentially from you know, Egyptian sources, that, that seems to indicate uh, the truth one way or the other. But at the moment, you know, we have some very reputable historians saying that he was a double agent, <laughs> some equally reputable historians saying that he was an Israeli agent. So yeah, I, I would say the jury is still out there. Yeah, well, I think that Andrew and Dina descending into the counterintelligence wilderness of mirrors <laughs> is probably <laughs> probably a good place to sign off. So. That, that, that's about enough for today, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks ever so much for your time, Dina. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, thanks for speaking to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast.spymuseum.org or on Twitter at intlspycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. 
The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Van Third, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. <laughs> <laughs>